We live in a really amazing time. Uh, medical, advances in medical science have taken a lot of mystery and a lot of fear out of diseases and illnesses and conditions <clears throat> excuse me, that not too long ago were incredibly frightening for us. In 19th century, a disease called leprosy, Hansen's disease also known as, was viewed as incurable, mysterious, highly contagious, didn't know what to do with patients who had leprosy, so often they were put into remote leper colonies because of the unsightly disfigurement and the what was thought to be highly contagious nature of that disease. In Hawaii, leprosy patients were, by government order, sent to a quarantine on Molokai, and on that island in Molokai, there were eight 800 or so leprosy patients who lived alone, isolated. And what would happen in these leper colonies, there would often be crime and oppression and abuse because people just didn't want to go there because it was so mysterious and so unknown. The Catholic Church wanted to care for these people in this leper colony in Molokai, but the, the church didn't know how to assign someone to that parish or that group. So they asked for volunteers, and there was a man named Father Damien who agreed to go to Molokai to care for and to be a spiritual uh, light for these leper patients, these patients with leprosy. So on May 10th, 1873, Father Damien arrived at this isolated settlement and he spoke to the assembled lepers who came and he said to them, I want to be one who will be a father to you, one who loves you so much that he will not hesitate to become one of you, to live with you and to die with you. So Damien worked to build a church there in this leper colony of Molokai. He served as a priest. He dressed their wounds. He ate with them. He helped them build homes. He helped them with infrastructure, with order in their community. He wrote to his brother six months after he arrived at Molokai and was serving there. He wrote to his brother, and he included this in his letter that he sent back home to his brother. I make myself a leper with the lepers to gain all to Jesus Christ. He helped them to build roads, to build infrastructure, to build a church, to encounter God. After 11 years of caring for the physical and spiritual and emotional needs of the leper colony, Father Damien realized one day when he was washing his face and he realized that the water wasn't as hot as it used to be, which is typically how patients uh, would, would recognize something's wrong, realized that he had contracted leprosy. And this is actually a picture of him uh, later in his ministry. Uh, with the leprosy he had contracted. So he continued to work with them even after he had contracted leprosy. And on April 15th in 1889, he died of complications from this disease. And while he wrote of the joy and the sacrifice, and certainly you even heard some of the quotes from him, that he wanted to be, even to give his life so that these people who are outcasts from society always reminded them no matter what society thinks of you God loves you and he drew great joy in that but he was a man who struggled himself one of his journal entries shows the struggle and temptation that comes along with even doing well at serving God he wrote this I was angry on Sunday three times before mass I had impure thoughts, furies I listened to tittle-tattle and gossip and did the same myself. Two or three times I allowed someone to die without the sacraments. Vanity, hatred, grumbling, and others. Inflexibility, that's what I'm guilty of. And I don't know about you, but that's a little refreshing to me that, wow, there are unique struggles that come 
even when we do well, even when we obey what God calls us to do, when we sacrifice ourselves, when we suffer, when we're outcasts, all the things we've been talking about in this series. So questions come to us as we journey through Philippians and talk about temptation today, about how do we, how do we find joy when we're walking this Christian life and we're struggling, we're bumping into the frustration, to the challenges, to the struggles. How do our efforts at living the Christian life and even applying the truth that God has given to us intersect with the reality that we mess up and we fail and that there's this enemy that works against us? How do we please God when our service and our obedience involves suffering and obstacles? Where do we go with that? Last week, if you were with us, we looked at Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. These verses highlight the call to humility. Remember, uh, don't look out for your own interests, but put other people's interests above yourselves. In fact, Paul used Jesus as an example and said, Have this mind in you, which was in Christ Jesus, who didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself a servant, putting our interests above his own. And Paul painted this glorious picture about laying aside me being more important instead of thinking of other people. Now, I've got to be honest, I don't know about you, but my alarm goes off usually about 5 o'clock every morning. I've already blown this by like 5.03. It doesn't take me very long during the day to think about myself more than my wife, my kids, you, whoever, whoever's in the road in front of me going to work. I mean, it doesn't take me long to be challenged at thinking about myself, others more than myself. The temptation to look at my own agenda The temptation to think that this day is about my priorities instead of God's priorities. The temptation to see me as being more important than others. And I think you can resonate with that. So the writer to Philippians, he gets that. Paul's in prison right now. He's, we'll see in a minute, he may die in this imprisonment. But he knows that the most, the deepest point of wrestling is that wrestling deep in our souls. That wrestling about whether I'm going to be in control of my life or not. There's a deep wrestling match inside of each of us that shows the desires of our heart. Who's really in charge here? Who's going to write the script for this day, for this relationship? So let's pick up at Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. I'm going to read verses, starting with verse 12. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along or in your YouVersion Bible app, and it will also be on the screen for you. Dear friends, you always followed my instruction when I was with you. And now that I'm away, it is even more important. Work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. The Philippian Christians were facing a lot of challenges, internal challenges and external challenges, as every church does, as our church does. Paul planted this church, he knew these people, and now he's writing to them from prison and He's saying, I'm not with you. I want you to be doing what you were doing when I was there. In other words, the things that I taught you when I was present and you followed, I want you to follow those even though I'm not with you. I can't be there, but I want you to keep doing what's right. And we do that as parents, don't we? It's very common. I just did that this last week. I I sent a text to my son, Jack, who lives in Columbia because it was going to be really, really cold. And I sent a little text to him and said, make sure you stop by the gas station and get a bottle of fuel line de-icer and put that in your gas tank tonight before you go to bed because you'll need it in the morning. 
And, and he sent me a text back and said, I've got two bottles in the trunk. I always keep two bottles in the trunk. And then I thought, oh yeah, I taught him to do that. So he actually, he actually was doing what I had told him he should do. And I was like, oh yeah. And, but that's exactly what Paul's saying here. Like, just like a parent reminding your kids, and yeah, you've already told me that, I'm doing it. Paul's wanting them to keep obeying, keep, keep their lives anchored in this love that Jesus Christ has for them. So when he started this church, he saw their obedience, they were going, now something has knocked kind of knocked them off balance, conflict, suffering, struggles, selfishness, all these things that we're talking about as we go through this book. Paul knows it's not easy, but he wants to keep them on track. So he says something in verse uh, 12 that we need to look at. In the ESV, this phrase is, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In the New Living Translation, It's even more important to work hard to show the results of your salvation. The gist of what Paul is saying is even though I'm not there, keep working hard at this. Keep investing in this. Keep striving to live into everything that we taught you when we planted your church. Now this is not some kind of rugged spiritual individualism that once God saves you, now it's up to you. Keep keep striving, keep working, keep trying to earn what you've been given. That's not it at all. Instead, what Paul wants is for the people in Philippi and what God would want for us is that we don't stop making progress regardless of the circumstances that are going on around us. He wants them to continue carrying out and living into and growing into the salvation that they've received. It's interesting, we should say, he doesn't say work out your justification. He says work out your salvation. This isn't talking about you need to earn your right standing with God. No, that's settled on the cross. That's not something that is even questionable now if we've been saved and rescued by faith in Jesus Christ. Justification is done, but salvation is something we keep working on. In fact, there are three, at least three ways to think of salvation that I think are very biblical. One is I have been saved, something that happened in the past. We find teaching in the New Testament that says, I am being saved right now. I'm in a process of being saved, and I will be saved. In the, in, in the day that I get to heaven, I will be saved. So salvation is a past, present, and future reality, and I think that helps us to understand what Paul is saying here. He's not saying work hard to be justified before God. Jesus took care of that on the cross. That's not even a question. It's work hard to live out this salvation that you've received and you are receiving and you will receive even in the future. All of those are valid and true. And then he adds with deep reverence and fear. With fear. Not fear that that causes us to, to cower, but fear that causes us to worship. Fear that causes us to respect Fear that causes us to take seriously that God who saves us and who redeems us and who promises us eternity also gives us responsibility and an opportunity to live out the faith that we have been given. Paul doesn't shy away from warning his readers about hard things. He does it all over the place. In fact, in Romans chapter 11, listen to to what he writes to the, the Roman Christians, starting with verse 20. Yes, but remember, those branches were broken off because they didn't believe in Christ, and you were there also because you do believe. So don't think highly of yourself, but fear what could happen. Fear what could happen. There's a a real reason for us to fear what could happen 
Because if God didn't spare the original branches, he won't spare you. We had uh, some pastors were together this weekend doing some planning and prayer. And we got talking about theological systems and such. And it's interesting to think about that here because often we approach this sort of a topic from a theological system. And theological, theological systems tend to lean toward human responsibility in our salvation or God's sovereignty in our salvation. And, and most of us, you know, we get in our system boat and we go down here and we just white out the verses that seem to show something different. But the true truth is Paul warns us a lot in the New Testament about staying dedicated, staying in this game. Now, that would be very discouraging, except for what, ha- what comes in verse 13. Look at this carefully. Work out your salvation. Strive diligently to make this happen. But in verse 13, he writes, For it is God who works in you to give you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. Like, thank you, God. Because if it was really up to me, you know, I'm not going to make this. I can't do that. So Paul said, work hard, strive to live out your salvation because of what God has already done and how he has given you the power of the Holy Spirit to actually walk in obedience. So if it happens, it's not about you, it's about him. That's really the key. If my obedience ends up being that I'm a good guy, that I've somehow earned something, then we've totally, totally eliminated it from how it's supposed to work. If my obedience is a reflection of the Holy Spirit's work in me to help me to actually care for someone or to avoid sin, whatever that act of obedience is, then it's God who gets the glory. My work matters, but it's God who gets the glory. The evangelical church struggles with this a lot more than Paul does, I think. Paul seems to be okay with a tension between it's not you do your part, God does, he, God does his part. It's, it's all God. If I get to heaven, it's because of God. If I get to heaven, it's, it's because I've, I've walked in obedience to him based on the work that he's done in my life. Paul seems to say, yes, you're the one who lives this out. It has to be you, but it has to be God. And we tend to, we tend to think those need to be bifurcated. And Paul says, no, those are one and the same. Look at how he he describes it in Romans chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. Maybe this will help. He writes, Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what is sinful, to your sinful urges. Stop right there. So I'm not obligated to say something bad about someone else. I'm not obligated to gossip. I'm not obligated to shade the truth. Why? Because of what Christ has done for me. I could... I'm not obligated to go in areas of sexual sin or power or, you know, sloth or gluttony. That's a good one for us. I'm not obligated to eat that second piece of pie. Um, but then he goes into, you, if you live by its dictates, by this sinful nature, you will die. And that's got to be a real warning. Somehow, there's death that comes from living according to our sinful nature. But if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. So I'm not obligated to the sinful nature to do what it says. But if I, by the power of the Spirit, that is, it's all God, you, it's, it's you, put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. 
Um, it's us working in conjunction with the power that God gives us that helps us to overcome sin. It's a unifying principle that this is for the purpose and pleasure of God. He rescues us, he fills us with his spirit so that he can get praise and glory from our obedience. That's one of the tests. Our response to temptation, just like Paul would have been tempted in prison uh, to think of himself rather than to think of other people. Instead, he gives that up for the Lord. So working out your salvation is not, as often believed, you doing your part to be saved. That's not it. It's you doing your part, you investing in, leaning into the work that God has already done in you and is doing in you to live out what the Spirit wants to do in your life. And we have to be honest, we can take anything and make it a meritorious work on our behalf, can't we? We can take prayer and make it a meritorious work. We can even take humility. Some of the most humble-looking people that I've ever come across are some of the most proud and arrogant people because sometimes that humility... And, and I've talked to people sometimes in counseling or in pastoral counseling with people and they're trying to figure this out and, and they have this humble, contrite demeanor and it doesn't take long to realize this is all about you, isn't it? This is, your humility is really a good expression of pride. And so we can twist anything, even some what looks like an act of obedience to make it meritorious for us as though we're earning some kind of merit badge with God and that is not at all how this Christian life of discipleship works. So enough of that, let's jump to the next section, verse 14. Do everything without arguing or complaining so that no one can criticize you. Live clean and innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. Hold firmly to the word of life, and then on the day of Christ's return, I will be proud that I did not run the race in vain and that my work was not useless. But I will rejoice even if I lose my life pouring it out like a liquid offering to God, just like your faithful service is an offering to God. And I want all of you to share in that joy. Yes, you should rejoice, and I will share in your joy. Now, Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, does not wait, make its way. That's a verse that does not make its way to very many social media posts. It just doesn't. Do everything without arguing or complaining. Are you for real, Paul? Do everything. Do you, you don't live with the people I live with. You don't work with the people I work with. You don't go to church with the people I work church with. I could complain about this verse being in the Bible. Like, how do you do that? That is not even possible. If you're going to really live with people, Paul, do everything without arguing or complaining. It's important to know the writer here, we, we jump from week to week. This is one letter Last week we looked at a thought that Paul was trying to get across to the, the Philippians and he wants to get across to us too. Don't think of yourself more important than other people. Put other people's interests above your, your own interests. Live like that. If you want an example, think of Jesus who didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped but instead gave himself up. He emptied himself and became a servant. Made, nothing of it, made himself like nothing so that he could serve us. Then Paul moves into work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Then he says, don't complain. You see that the, the solution to complaining, the remedy for complaining is not stop complaining. Oh, we could maybe shut our mouths for a little bit, but my mind is going to keep going. 
the remedy, the way for complaining and arguing to decrease in the church is for us to realize that the battle for complaining and arguing is not at this level at all. We fight temptation and sin at the wrong level almost all the time. See, if I'm just trying to not complain more, if I'm trying to not argue with people more, if I'm trying not to be contentious, then I'm up here at this level of behavior. But while Paul's saying, no, if you actually think of other people more important than yourself and that person who cuts you off in traffic, you're going to be less likely to complain about them because they're getting where they need to go is more important than you need getting to where you need to go. You following me? People are less annoying when they're more important than me. People are less annoying when I'm putting their needs above my own. I can love people better. I can put up with people better when, when I'm, I'm looking out for them before I'm looking out for myself. That's what Paul's saying. We'll, we'll argue less when we think of other people more than ourselves. The temptation or to complain, the temptation to argue, the temptation to commit any sin comes from deep, deep within us. And one of the themes I want us to get here If we're going to overcome temptation, we can't just do it at the level of my actions and my words. It has to be at this deep heart level of where I'm wrestling with who's really in control of my life. Am I really going to go all in with Jesus? Let him be in control of my life so that it's not me who lives, but it's Christ who lives in me. So I'm going to think of other people better than myself. Therefore, I'll probably complain less. Or am I going to keep my stand where I know what's right? I'm going to hold this. I'm even going to do the Christian life my way, which is really scary. That's where Paul's going with us. We don't get the details of what the offense is that they're arguing or complaining about in Philippi. It might be the conflict with Yodian and Tiki that we'll get to later in the letter. Uh, We just don't know, which probably is to our benefit because then we would say, oh, then that's what we shouldn't complain about when it's really everything in our lives. I'm going to give you two diagnostic questions before we make a transition to the next section. So two diagnostic questions that will help us in this area of arguing or complaining that could be applied to other areas too. How am I serving the person or people that I'm tempted to complain about or argue with? How am I serving the person or people that I'm tempted to complain about or argue with? That's hard. Because when I'm arguing with someone, I am not in a mood to serve them. But I'm called to. I'm empowered by the Holy Spirit to be able to serve people that I'm in deep disagreement with. People who are hurting me, I'm called to serve them. So that's a good diagnostic question. How am I serving the person or people I'm tempted to complain about or argue with? Another diagnostic question, is my heart posture of complaining or arguing keeping me or preventing me from experiencing the joy of my Christian life? That is, is my complaining or arguing is that posture hindering me from living into the rejoicing and the joy and the happiness that we're talking about in the sermon series those are two really good diagnostic questions that I need to ask myself every day I want you to ask yourself and they help us to push the push the argument down to the deeper heart level because we all are called to do things that we have excuses and reasons why we wouldn't do it I should say we have reasons why we shouldn't do it, not an excuse not to do it. We always have a reason why, and I can say why I don't want to do something. I could be tempted to not love someone. I could be tempted to not serve. And I might have a good reason why I shouldn't serve or or I'm not going to serve, but I don't have an excuse. 
I remember my third grade Sunday school teacher, a little country church in central Illinois, there were about eight of us third graders that would come into this Sunday school classroom and sit around the table. And our teacher, Bob, would come in and teach us. But Bob didn't walk into the Sunday school classroom with us third graders. He came in in a wheelchair. He had muscular dystrophy. And he would be wheeled in every week and he would be set at the head of the table. And Bob pulled out this huge, I mean, as a third grader, it looked like a two-inch thick magnifying glass because he couldn't see very well. And he would put that on the quarterly. Remember the old Sunday school quarterlies? And he would set that on the table and he would read through this Sunday school quarterly for us third graders telling us about Jesus. I don't remember much. It probably wasn't that great of a lesson in terms of, I mean, he read the quarterly to us. So I, I, I don't remember like the content change in my life, but I do remember a man who had every reason not to teach third grade Sunday school. Every reason not to get up and get dressed and get in his wheelchair and bring his big magnifying glass and sit with a group of third graders and help them to know Jesus. And I learned more about following Jesus. I knew more about overcoming temptation to give up and to not stay in the battle, to not strive to work out my salvation from Bob in third grade Sunday school than I probably would have learned if we had the most amazing content presented there. That's what we're talking about. Where are we wrestling with those temptations? So I want to share... One other piece of that, I guess, that's worth saying. Don't think that don't argue or complain means we can never say anything that's hard. We can't have those hard conversations. Sometimes we need to confront one another. Sometimes we need to share things that are hard to share and talk about. Complaining means I'm coming from a posture that I'm more important than you, and I need to let you know that. Good, healthy conversation. I often say in church life, um, nice is the enemy of truth and love. We can be nice to each other and in doing that sin against each other a lot. Nice is the enemy of truth and love. Sometimes I need to say hard things. You need to say hard things to me. The real question is, is that coming from a place of I'm more important than you or you're more important than me and maybe I need to talk to you about something but I have to start with who in the world am I to tell you anything about what I see in your life because I, I have a long list of stuff that I know It's not right in my life. And that's the heart posture that we need to come to when we we do this. So another verse that, so as Paul shares this, what's it going to be like if we stop complaining and arguing? What's it going to be like if we really get this? Isaiah chapter 42 highlights from an Old Testament perspective, what because Paul paints this picture of shining like lights around us. Think about that. In this culture today, where every Facebook post is complaining about something, what would it be like if First Free didn't do that? What would it be like if we all of a sudden put other people's needs ahead of ourselves? That would be a pretty bright light in this community and in this, in this world. So in Isaiah chapter 42, I just like this verse uh, because it talks about the light that God wanted his Old Testament church to be. I, the Lord, have called you to demonstrate my righteousness. I will take you by the hand and guard you. I will give you, my people Israel, as a symbol of my covenant with them, and you will be a light to guide the nations. You'll be a light to guide the nations. That was God's God's plan for his Old Testament people. And and I think we we can see similar things even in the New Testament. God wants us to be a light to this world, to the nations. 
And this is how we do it. He goes on, verse 16, 17. Hold firmly to the word of life then on the day of Christ when I return I will be proud that I did not run the race in vain that my work was not useless but I will rejoice even if I lose my life pouring it out like a liquid offering to God just like your faithful service is an offering to God and I want all of you to share in that joy. Yes, you, would rejo- you should rejoice and I will share in your joy. When we have that attitude that Christ wants us to have, we push into the hard things of life, and we draw that joy out, and we overcome temptation, not by fighting against it at the action level, but by exposing our heart posture toward God and surrendering to Him. And then we find that joy. Because even like Paul talks about being poured out as a, as a drink offering, which in, in the Old Testament we see drink offerings as part of the sacrificial system, would have been very common in the ancient East. Even other religions had offering systems and being poured out. Paul's saying his life is being poured out as an offering to God. And he's saying that's, that's something that I can take joy in. And I want you, Philippian church, to take joy in that with me. It's a consistent image of suffering in the New Testament so after this, even as I was studying this, I go, get all that. And then Paul jumps into, let me talk about Timothy. Let me talk about Epaphroditus. And at first I thought, where is that going to fit in? And I think Paul, in this thought of partnership in the gospel and pouring ourselves out, these two guys come to mind. So as we wrap up, I'm going to share with these the last part of this chapter. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 24, Paul introduces or talks to us about Timothy, who was one of his partners in ministry and helped plant this church and is now with him in prison or visiting him in prison. If the Lord is willing, starting at verse 19, I hope to send Timothy to you soon for a visit. Then he can cheer me up by telling me how you're getting along. I have no one else like Timothy who genuinely cares about your welfare. All the others care only for themselves and not for what matters to Jesus Christ. But you know how Timothy has proved himself like a son with his father. He has served with me in preaching the good news. I hope to send him soon to you. As soon as I find out what happens to me here, I have confidence that the Lord will let me come to you soon. Paul's not sure what's going to happen to him. Is he going to die? Is he going to come back? Timothy's there. They know Timothy. Timothy knows them. Helped to plant that church. He knows these people. And Paul reminds them that he genuinely is concerned for them, for the work of others. Unusually so. He's unusually concerned and lives with concern for other people and for Christ more than for himself. Paul wants Timothy to take the news of what's happening to him back to Philippi, but he needs to wait. But he does want to send another messenger back, and that's where we meet the next guy, Epaphroditus, in chapter 2, verses 25 through 30. I'm going to read these verses for you. And this is the only, the only things we know about Epaphroditus come from this section and a verse later in this letter. Meanwhile, I thought I should send Epaphroditus back to you. He is a true brother, a co-worker, and a fellow soldier. He was your messenger to help me in need. I'm sending him because he has been longing to see you, and he was very ill and distressed that you heard he was ill. And he certainly was ill. In fact, he almost died. But God had mercy on him and also on me, so that I would not have one sorrow upon another. So I am all the more anxious to send him back to you, for I know that you will be glad to see him, and then I will not be worried about you. Welcome him in the Lord's love with great joy and give him honor that people like him deserve. For he risked his life 
for the work of Christ. He was at the point of death doing for me what you couldn't do from far away. So hearing Paul was in trouble in prison, apparently the church in Philippi wanted to send someone to care for him, bring some gifts and support. So Epaphroditus is their messenger. He comes to Paul, caring for him in prison. Somehow he becomes deathly ill, almost dies. Word somehow gets back to the Philippian believers that, wow, we sent Epaphroditus to help Paul. Now, now Epaphroditus is sick. What's going on? They're anxious. Word gets back to Paul and Epaphroditus that the Philippian church is anxious, and now he's anxious, and they're all really worked up on this. What are we going to do? So Paul's like, I'm going to send this guy back to you, but before I do that, let me tell you the kind of character he has. Let me tell you what this man has done and how he served. And if we push pause, well, he came and he got sick and you had to help him. And, but, but no, let me tell you, Paul says, about this man. It's graphic. He said he nearly died in his service to Paul. Paul goes on to say, welcome him warmly because he risked his life for the work of Christ. That word literally means gambled. He gambled his life away so that he could help Paul, so that he could accomplish this work of caring for other people. Remember, this is what the topic was last week. Put others' needs above yourselves. And Paul's saying, you guys, you guys know how to do this. I've seen you do it. You sent Epaphroditus. He actually came and he did this for me. He did this for Christ. What temptations are you facing today in your life? Where are you facing temptations to operate by your own agenda rather than by the agenda that God has for you? Where are you facing bitterness, shame, pride, lust, selfishness? Where are you putting yourself at the head of the line instead of other people at the head of the line? The Christian life is all about depending on God to face these temptations. The Christian life is depending on God to make me the kind of man that God wants me to be so that he can, he can give me those desires and fill me with his spirit that I might walk in the way he wants to walk so that he gets the glory. I'm going to close by sharing and transition to communion today by sharing a verse from Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 16 through 18, really camp on verse 18. The writer says, Surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. And here's the verse I want you to really take away. For because he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Because he suffered when he was tempted, He's able to help those who are being tempted. See, there's something about temptation that has a suffering element to it. Um, when Jesus, Jesus lived for us before he died for us, remember that. Jesus suffered for us before he died for us. And part of that suffering was going through very real temptation. Not just temptation to steal or lie, or, but if you remember the the temptation when, Je when the devil came to Jesus and was tempting him. He didn't start off by saying, turn this rock into, a bread, into bread. What did he say before that? If you're really the son of God, if you are truly the son of God, in other words, the temptation came at the heart identity level of Jesus, didn't it? If you're truly the son of God, then do this. Are you really in control here, Jesus? 
You could do this. You don't have to follow what God's plan was for you. But Jesus suffered when he was tempted. So when you and I are facing temptation, when you and I are dealing with the very real temptation of our lives, we're not alone. The temptation to control my life, the temptation to complain and argue, Jesus is right there and he understands what that is. Let's pray. God, we want that kind of connection with our Savior Jesus so that when we get into those moments or or maybe it's just kind of a 24-7 background music that plays in our life that maybe we should really take control. Maybe it is more about us being important than other people. It's so comforting to know that our Savior Jesus has been there for us. Part of what he died for was this very thing. Part of what he lived for and the way he faced suffering was so that we might know this kind of hope. So when we're wrestling with whether we can trust you today, I pray that we would see Jesus right there. When we're wrestling with whether it's our agenda over your agenda, please let us see Jesus. He's here for us today. I pray that we will meet him in a very special way. Amen. The Lord's Supper is all about this. It's about how Jesus was tempted. It's about how he gave his life for us. It's about his example, but his life that becomes our life. If you're a Christian today here, if you follow Jesus Christ and ask him to be your savior and you're walking with him by faith, you're welcome to join us in this communion time, whether you're part of our church family or not. If you're still wrestling with whether Jesus is who he said he was or God's in control of your life, we want to respect where you're at on your journey and ask that you respect where we're at with what this means and you can just let the tray pass by and just keep thinking about and praying about the things that we've talked about in this message so that we can continue to, uh, to have Jesus do among us and change us at that deep.